talking about spiritual formation, uh, how we are made more and more into the image of Jesus. And we're talking about how because we are fundamentally desiring, loving, worshiping creatures, that is the place where we need to focus when we begin talking about change. And we've looked at in in multiple ways how that's uh, the place in which the Bible directs much of our change as well, that our uh, desires and our loves would be reordered, that we would become those who who worship God uh, first and foremost and have the uh, have rightly ordered ultimate loves in the world. Uh, a couple important quotes, one that we've looked at every week that I'll just keep there for us that I think is very helpful to keep in mind as we come to the practice of spiritual disciplines or uh, just spiritual formation generally, and it's that by Dallas Willard. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort, because so much of what we'll talk about and have talked about are ways in which we... Uh, do give forth some effort, do give ourselves to these processes of change, uh, these ways in which we can get in the way of the Spirit's work, if we could say it that way. And that's similar to the quote that I uh, that is new this week that I put on there, but beneath the other uh, that Willard gets at here. It says, we must seek out ways to live and act in union with the flow of God's kingdom life that should come through our relationship with Jesus. I think that's helpful because it keeps God as the one who's the primary author of change in our lives, but also recognizes that that what we do matters, that we put ourselves in the way of the Spirit's work and in the way of what God is doing in the world to avail ourselves to all of the goodness that he he can bring about in our lives. Uh, So uh, we've talked about worship. We talked, uh, Jacob talked about music. We had a couple weeks on the scriptures. Last week, we talked about sacraments. Mixing it up a little bit this week, and we're going to talk about silence and solitude. Uh, I'll tell you why we're doing that this week um, in a bit. I want to start with this, though. Uh, illustration here of the, uh, it's the world's quietest room, okay? It's in, any, it's in Minneapolis. It's called the Orfield Anechoic. Okay, I don't know how to say this, so I'm going to write it. Yeah, no echo. That's right, no echo. Um, and so uh, this is the uh, this is the quietest room in the world. It has a uh, it, it's registered at negative nine decibels compared to the average quiet room, which is thirty decibels. So here's how they did this: the, the key to the level of the silence is the fact that these the walls and the floor and the ceiling absorb all the sound rather than reflecting it. Okay. Uh, so it has no echo at all. It's so quiet that you can hear your own organs. Okay, you can hear your heart, your stomach, uh, even your ears, which make a tiny amount of noise. Okay, uh, yeah. So uh, it, this might sound incredible, but there, there's actually a limit to the amount of time that a person could spend in this place. Any guesses as to what the record is for spending time in this room? Huh? 40 seconds? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the record is 45 minutes. Okay. The average person can only handle 30 minutes because at that point, the hallucinations begin. Okay. Uh, here's what this article said. The experience is so disorienting that it could drive a person mad. In fact, it's imperative that people sit down. Standing up and walking around is simply impossible because we orient ourselves through the sounds we hear when we walk. There are no cues to go by inside the chamber. So it'll drive you crazy to be that quiet and that alone for that long. They didn't have any moms as three 
That's right. That's right. <laughs> that 45-minute record was not, not from a mother. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah, that's good. Uh, and then a quote from, from Pascal that, that gets at this as well. Um, All men's miseries derive from not being able to sit in a quiet room alone. And Willard comments on this that uh, uh, he, he speaks of Pascal going on to talk about diversion as the only way that you can deal with this source of, uh, from which all of our miseries derive. Uh, and so he says, we require things to distract us from ourselves. And so uh, Pascal says, or Pascal says, hence it comes people so much love, noise and stir. Hence it comes that the prison is so horrible a punishment. Hence it comes that the pleasure of solitude is a thing incomprehensible. Okay. Uh, hopefully my point is obvious right there. Uh, that we're afraid of silence and solitude. We don't really know how to deal with it. Uh, that there maybe are parts of it that sound incredible, that sound really wonderful. Uh, but then there are also things that are genuinely uh, frightening about it. And we'll talk about why that is. But uh, I want to introduce this as something that is, is probably a, a practice that is not very common to us, one that we might not know a lot about, might not know why this would be important. Or we have some idea of how that would sound nice to have some peace and quiet but not as to how this would be characterized or categorized as a spiritual discipline. So that's some of what we're going to talk about. And that's really why I'm talking about this before prayer. We'll talk about prayer the following two weeks. Uh, and it's because this uh, becomes a discipline that creates space for the rest of the disciplines in substantial ways. And so that's a lot of what uh, the writers on these topics discuss, that this becomes something that, that you almost have to do first in order to appreciate anything else at all in this uh, suite of disciplines. So a quote from Willard, of all the disciplines of abstinence, solitude is generally the most fundamental in the beginning of the spiritual life, and it must be re returned to again and again as that life develops. So this is what we're going to look at. So first, what is silence and solitude? A couple definitions. The discipline of silence is the voluntary and temporary abstention from speaking so that certain spiritual goals might be sought. Solitude is the spiritual discipline of voluntary and temporarily withdrawing to privacy for spiritual purposes. So always with a purpose in mind. And then from Willard in solitude, we purposefully abstain from interaction with other human beings, denying ourselves companionship and all that comes from conscious interaction with others. Uh, this is probably obvious, but silence and solitude are complementary practices. It's hard to do one without the other, right? And, uh, and that's what many authors say as well, that silence completes and intensifies solitude. Um, that silence is the way to make solitude a reality. And then from Willard, halfway through that quote, uh, silence completes solitude, for without it, you cannot be alone. You remain subject to the pulls and pushes of a world that exhausts you and keeps you in bondage, distracting you from God and your own soul. Far from being a mere absence, silence allows the reality of God to stand in the midst of your life. And then it frequently accompanies prayer. As Nouwen says, silence, or solitude and silence can never be separated from the call to unceasing prayer. I want to uh, make a quick qualification, though, because... Um, when we think of this, and this, uh, even when we talk about it being like a container discipline, which is the way we'll see it described later, is that uh, we might think, well, that's the time when I'm going to really dig in and study the Bible, or that's going to be the time where my prayer life is going to be, is going to be really full. And when, so we read something like that from now on and think, 
I'm just going to be kind of listing off my petitions before God. That's actually not what he has in mind here. Um, he, he has in mind something more fundamental uh, that, that would be more better described just as being with God and describing that as prayer. There's a, a quote from Frederick Beekner who says that uh, we live in this chatty society and that that actually extends into our relationship with God as well. And I think this is probably, I know this is why I struggle a lot of times with prayer, is that sometimes it starts feeling like you're just reading a list of requests or something. And that's all you're doing. And so really it's not a time of silence. Whether it's actually audible or internal, there's kind of a nonstop dialogue, or maybe monologue is more appropriate. And so that it doesn't actually come away, uh, you don't come away having had a time of silence and solitude. So... Prayer is a part of this because it's not as though you're trying to separate yourself from God. It's that you're separating everything else in order to be with God in his presence. And in that way, it goes uh, very closely with meditation. We talked about some two weeks ago. So it accompanies prayer, but it's not petition, petitionary prayer the whole time. It's not prayer of supplication in a nonstop way. It, it, it's much more basic than that. Uh, yeah, here's that quote from Calhoun. Practice of solitude involves scheduling enough uninterrupted time in a distraction-free environment that you experience isolation and are alone with God. Solitude is a container discipline for the practice of other spiritual disciplines. So, important word there on uh, the connection with prayer. Uh, and then finally, a word up front here. Silence and solitude go hand in hand with fellowship and community. In Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, he has a chapter called The Day Together. The chapter following that is called The Day Alone. And so he, you know, he has this underground seminary in, uh, during World War II that has huge components of both. I mean, this book is called Life Together, right? So you think this is all about fellowship, community, and the importance of that. And there's plenty of that. But then there's an entire chapter devoted to what it looks like to be alone with God as well. And his point is that you must have both. So a great quote from him, he says, let, let him who cannot be alone be aware, be aware of community. Uh, let him be aware of community. Sorry. Let him who is not in community beware of being alone. And so th this goes well beyond kind of the introvert extrovert distinction. Um, we all need solitude and silence. We all need fellowship and community. Some of those things are going to come more easily to us than others, depending on whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. But these are uh, both things that we need to cultivate in our integral parts of our life with God. Uh, so those are uh, some upfront little definitions. Uh, where do we see this in the scriptures? We see this in the prophets. Uh, Isaiah 26.3, this is to, to Judah as to what's going to happen when God reigns. So you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And something to notice through all of these passages is the connection between silence and solitude and trusting God. Okay, notice that. Uh, and then Isaiah 30, this is to Judah and their rebellion and refusal to return to God. For thus said the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel in returning, or that could be repentance, in repentance and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away and we will ride upon swift steeds. Therefore, your pursuer shall be swift. So you see there it's it's uh, it's either doing and trying to accomplish this all on our own and, and saving ourselves 
or we're going to be quiet and trust in God. And then Lamentations, the Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. One of the classic examples is in uh, 1 Kings 19 with Elijah. We won't read that, but you could go back and look at that on your own. Um, the, the point I want us to notice here is that silence and solitude is an embodied act of trust. Okay, uh, You read over and over in the Psalms. We're only going to look at a couple here, but you, you read of uh, the psalmist saying, I've made God my refuge. And I always think that's interesting because it's it's an, something active that they've done. I've made God my refuge. And and I've thought, like, what does that mean? What does it look like to actually do this? I think that silence and solitude is an embodied way that we actually practice that. It forces us to stop our doing all the time. And, and, and it brings us to a, a place where it's forced trust, especially if you're like everybody in here is busy. Where like the, the thought of carving out time to do this is already kind of feeling impossible. It, it forces us in a very embodied, real way to trust God long enough to stop and recognize that he's the one who's in charge of this. He's the one who has accomplished our salvation. He's the one in whom we can find rest. So then Psalms, familiar verse there, 4610, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. And this is in the context of this craziness and chaos in the world. And the psalmist can say, be still and know that I am God. Or God says to the psalmist, yes. Oh, good. Yeah, cease striving. That's great. Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, and then Psalm 62 for God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And then uh, we'll look here at these examples of Jesus. This is really interesting when you start, uh, when you have an eye out for this as you're reading the Gospels. Uh, notice the context in which these come. I want to discuss this after we'll read through them first. And then we'll kind of, we'll explore some of what these circumstances were under which he withdrew into solitude so first the temptation this is just mark's quick account of it uh, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days what's important about this account is that jesus was alone the overwhelming majority of that 40 days and 40 nights uh, the temptation only arose at the very end of his time in the wilderness so he's being tempted by satan he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him a lot of a lot of authors point to this as uh, as solitude and silence is not a, a place where, I mean, it is a place of difficulty and, and it can be struggle and strife. And we'll look at that in a moment. But in the example of Jesus, that becomes a source of strength as well, because this is the place where he goes prior to this very significant temptation. See it before preaching uh, later on in Mark's gospel there and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And then after healing a leper, this is important. Think about why this would matter. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. 
But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. What does Jesus do in that context? That he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Then before choosing the twelve, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And then he comes and chooses the twelve. After feeding the five thousand, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before them to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. And then our final example here in Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus says, he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. He goes a little farther, fell on his face and prayed. Uh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Uh, and so he's separating himself even here to this place of solitude and silence. Um, OK, let me ask this question. Why do you think Jesus withdrew to pray in solitude? Okay. Great. You know, like when he was walking through the crowd, the woman touched him and felt the power go out from him. Yeah. So maybe it was just kind of a restorative thing, too. Yeah. Going to rest. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, and I think that's that's exactly right. Uh, What is completely uh, flooring about that, though? Yeah, right. He's God. This is Jesus, the Son of God, fully God and fully, fully human, a full human being, uh, but he himself w- had to do this. He, he, he withdrew to be with his father. It was something that important to him. Yeah. It demonstrates more of his humanity. Yeah, yeah, the, it definitely does. Yeah. Uh, any other observations about the context in which this withdrawal came? How about maybe after healing or after feeding the 5,000 Mm-hmm. So he was tempted um, after healing the leper. I mean, to um, to just really um, maybe pride, you know, to, yeah. to be to um, to accept their praise and want more of it, and so to fight that temptation, um, he had to withdraw prayer. Yeah, and I, th- I think this is probably the most remarkable thing to me is that he, in that context, after that healing, if you look at verse fifteen, Luke five fifteen. The report about him understandably goes abroad, right? Great crowds gather to hear him. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and be healed of their infirmities. So this isn't the crowd who's trying to, uh, you know, to raise him up as a king in a way that he was not going to be a king or that this isn't like the the crowd gathering later on that's going to try and, and kill him. This is a crowd coming for good things to hear more of this gospel, to see and be healed of these things. And so uh, what I think is fascinating is that Jesus turns from something that was really, really good to go into solitude and silence, which we ha- would have to say to go then do something better in this context. Not all the time, but he actually said no to something really, really good, something that he was all about, namely the proclamation of the, he- of the gospel of the kingdom and the demonstration of it. But he, he has to withdraw to a desolate place to pray. Um, I think that that's incredible. The, the temptation that he would have to do more good things. And instead he shows 
No, I'm, I need to withdraw and be in solitude and silence here to be with my father. Uh, so, yeah, so important, important observations there as to uh, Jesus's example of this. And I think that's where we need to continue to turn as we think about this. Uh, OK. What are the challenges, difficulties, objections that we might come up with that we face uh, to practicing silence and solitude? What are some things you can think of? Sorry? Meditation. That meditation would be an ob- objection to it, you think? Oh, I'm sorry. I've got my wires crossed. Okay, okay. Yeah, we're thinking of like uh, of difficulties, challenges, things where you say, this is an important thing to do. What comes to your mind as the, uh, yeah, but? Do everything else first. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have to stop. That's hard. Uh, it, it could seem unproductive to us to actually stop. Yeah, yeah, and we'll look at this, that you're... So the TV goes on, the earphones go in, the whatever that your practice is. Yeah, 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 there's a quote from Foster I've got on here that uh, loneliness is inner emptiness, and that's the way it can begin to feel. Yeah, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. It's. I forget that we were talking about this yesterday. The cartoon, the movie where the dog is talking and then he does squirrel, like right in the middle, and, and he's distracted. That's how it can feel too. Squirrel. Yeah. What else? Yeah. In that grace that he has for you. Yeah. Well, like maybe there's some selfishness to this or something, or maybe maybe there's something better I could be doing with my time. Uh, one thing I think about a lot is, uh, is it really more beneficial for me to be in this time of silence and solitude than it would be to really like focus on memorizing scripture or studying the Bible or doing something good? And I think that's where we go back to Jesus's example to go, okay... There is something really good and important about this that we need to do. What else? Other fears, challenges? Well, I think the good and the bad of it is those are the moments when those things come back to haunt you, to remind you. You can't get away from them that you need to deal with. Maybe you haven't dealt with Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that could be... Um, yeah, that, that could be your own struggles, your own sins, um, for sure. Those sorts of things. It could also be uh, kind of this stacking to-do list that begins to arise and you feel overwhelmed by all that. Yeah, Martin. Well, two things. I've learned, if I, if I have any kind of decision to make, especially with important life decision, uh, regarding family, et cetera, or if there's a moral quandary involved, uh, what I've learned is that it's, it's kind of like an extension of thing to sleep on it. Quiet, quiet your mind, mm-hmm. quiet my mind, and then uh, you know, sort of an, uh, an exercise in there for conscious contact with God. Mm-hmm. Uh, as opposed to interference from internal dialogue and the ego. 
Yeah. 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 That's great. Yeah. Uh, we'll take a look at some of these quotes that I pulled here. One is just uh, these. This first one is just an addiction to noise generally. In a noise polluted world, it's even difficult to hear ourselves think, let alone try to be still and know God. Uh, then the next one, though, that it seems to be unproductive, that we're addicted to busyness, we're addicted to doing. Silence asks for patience and waiting, and both silence and waiting make us uncomfortable. They seem so unproductive. We can't tell if we're doing anything in them, so when we come upon silence, we fill it. We cram it with something else we can learn or do or achieve. Uh, And then now one points out that this is even the way we feel uh, during worship. And I thought about this. I've talked to Jeanette about how long is the socially appropriate amount of time to allow for the silent confession. Okay, now I'm I'm all for that, but we talk about the discomfort that we feel during that time as well, um, because I mean it's good that we we've grown more accustomed to it and desire more of it. But for somebody who has never experienced that, what can immediately arise when uh, you offer time for silent confession is how long is this going to last? And then maybe it gets to the point where you you've exceeded your level of comfort with it, and you start going, when's he going to say something? When's Jacob going to start that song? It's got to be soon. Wow, this is a really long time. And on and on and on. Uh, and so this is what now one says. One of our main problems is, is that in this chatty society, silence has become a, fear, a very fearful thing. For most people, silence creates itchiness and nervousness. Many experience silence not as full and rich, but as empty and hollow. For them, silence is like a gaping abyss which can swallow them up. As soon as a minister says during worship service, let us be silent for a few moments, people tend to become restless and preoccupied with one thought. When will this be over? Imposed silence often creates hostility and resentment. And fear of being alone, we mentioned. Um, Yeah, and this is a good place to go from here. Um, St. John of the Cross, who was this... uh, who was this mystic who talked a lot about many of the spiritual practices, but he came up with a phrase, and you've probably heard this before, the dark night of the soul. And uh, what he's talking about there is what occurs often when we enter into a time of silence and solitude. And uh, that, that your, the dark parts of your heart become exposed. Um, you come to a point where maybe, if we're saying this is a time just to be with God, to sort of strip away everything else, that can be really sobering when it doesn't seem like there's actually much happening. And you feel like, wow, my relationship with the Lord is really wanting in a lot of ways. And I don't want to face that right now. Uh, and so that this is some of what these quotes get at this next section. Silence is frightening because it strips us as nothing else does, throwing us upon the stark realities of our life. We're so afraid of silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order not to have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order not to have to look at ourselves in the mirror. In quietness, we often notice things we would rather not notice or feel. Pockets of sadness or anger or loneliness or impatience begin to surface. And then that quote from Calhoun, Times of solitude can be sweet times, but they can also be dark times when God seems to remain withdrawn and silent. We seek the Lord, but he doesn't seem to show up. 
Don't be afraid of the darkness of solitude. Stay with God. The light will eventually come. Uh, so I want to start with those difficulties and obstacles because I want to be realistic about this practice. Uh, I want to be honest about the struggles that we actually have uh, when we talk about this practice. Uh, but then secondly, the reason I want to start with those is because it is for those very reasons that we actually need this practice, that we need to put this in place uh, in our lives. So why should we practice silence and solitude? This is, again, aside from the most obvious reason, which is namely that Jesus himself practiced it and we are following him in that way. So here's some uh, some reasons why this is an important practice. First, that practicing silence and solitude breaks the normal patterns into which we are locked. And remember Romans 12, 1 and 2, do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. And it's interesting that a lot of writers do a lot with that. that uh, they'll speak sometimes just of it being liberating us or that it liberates us from our addiction to noise around us. But that it can also actually break some patterns of sin. This is how Willard says it. You begin to unhook yourself from the automatic responses that dominate life around us. Those sort of knee-jerk reactions that can be oftentimes verbal responses, but even those that aren't. Um, it It can unhook us from those and give us pause. Oftentimes we don't have it. Uh, a good quote from Willard that I won't read on there about that. So it can break the normal patterns that we are, are in. Uh, and then along those lines, we've mentioned this, practicing silence and solitude creates space for other disciplines. See that quote from Calhoun. Solitude is a formative place because it gives God's spirit time and space to do deep work. And then from Willard, this is really helpful. Indeed, solitude and silence are powerful means to grace. Bible study, prayer, and church attendance among the most commonly prescribed activities in Christian circles generally have little effect for soul transformation, as is obvious to any observer. This is what he says about the whole of evangelicalism, that these are practices a lot of people do, and yet oftentimes we don't see the change we would hope for. If all people doing them were transformed to health and righteousness by them, the world would be vastly changed. Their failure to bring about the change is precisely because the body and soul are so exhausted, fragmented, and conflicted that the prescribed activities cannot be appropriately engaged in and by and large degenerate into legalistic and ineffectual rituals. Lengthy solitude and silence, including rest, can make them very powerful. That's a helpful quote. I mean, he's he's a spiritual discipline was he just actually just died last year. Um, He's written extensively on the disciplines, and so he probably has too much of a focus on the individual practice or the practice of individual disciplines over against other ways in which Jesus gives him to gives him to to us. But I think he's right in that this is certainly a piece of what we need. uh, Big picture. Thirdly, practicing silence and solitude exposes our hearts. This is saying the same thing three different ways. Exposes our hearts, exposes our false self, exposes our idols. Solitude is a terrible trial for it serves to crack open and burst apart the shell of our superficial securities. And a great quote from, from now and here. Our identity, our sense of self is at stake. The secular or false self is the self which is fabricated, as Thomas Merton says, by social compulsions. Compulsive is indeed the best adjective for the false self. It points to the need for ongoing and increasing affirmation. Who am I? I'm the one who's liked, praised, admired, 
dislike, hated, or despised. Whether I'm a pianist, a businessman, or a minister, what matters is how I am perceived by my world. If being busy is a good thing, then I must be busy. If having money is a sign of real freedom, then I must claim my money. If knowing many people proves my importance, I will have to make the necessary contacts. The compulsion manifests itself in the lurking fear of failing and the steady urge to prevent this by gathering more of the same. More work, more money, more friends. I think that's a, it's a long quote, but it's a really helpful quote. Uh, that our false self, this image, the glittering image, as one author writes, the glittering image that we put forward is, is exposed for what it really is in silence and solitude. Uh, and, and Nowen says that there are really two main enemies that arise in that context. One is anger and the other is greed. And here's, what he, here's the reason he says that. I think he's really onto it here. He says, what, what my, when my sense of self depends on what others say of me, Anger is a quite natural reaction to a critical word. And when my sense of self depends on what I can acquire and get, greed flares up when my desires are frustrated. And an important note on what kind of anger this is, that it's not necessarily this lashing out anger that we think of. This is kind of the below the surface seething anger, this opposition to something that I don't have, but I really wish I did. This is not an open, blatant, roaring anger, but an anger hidden behind the smooth word, the smiling face, and the polite handshake. It's a frozen anger, an anger which settles into a biting resentment and slowly paralyzes a generous heart. Then we run off at the mouth because we're inwardly uneasy about what others think of us. And you can just think about all the times that we speak and say things and defend ourselves, wanting to constantly be right. Um, the nagging sense of walking away from a conversation where you know that that person doesn't really know what you had said, that you didn't, you weren't communicating very clearly in that moment, and they might be thinking the wrong thing about you, and that continues to nag at you all the time. Uh, then from Foster, one reason we can hardly bear to remain silent is that it makes us feel so helpless. We're so accustomed to relying upon words to manage and control others. If we're silent, who will take control? goes on to say that God will. Uh, and then another quote from a frantic stream of words flows from us because we are in constant process of adjusting our public image. We fear so deeply what we think other people see in us that we talk in order to straighten out their understanding. Uh, and then look at that last quote, the last two from now on. In solitude, I get rid of my scaffolding. I think that's helpful. Here's the important thing. This is where we're going to the next point. This becomes then the place that we must meet Jesus. It becomes the place where we can and will meet Jesus because this is the place where he assures us of his love and the promise of his work in us. And now I'm so good on this because it can get to a place where in silence and solitude, you can go to a really dark place, spiral downward into kind of a morbid introspection where all of this junk is exposed and it can be utterly depressing if we remain in that place. Okay, That's not what Jesus intends for us, to stop at that point where all of our junk has been exposed. Here's what he says. Solitude is the place of the great struggle and the great encounter. The struggle against the compulsions of the false self and the encounter with the loving God who offers himself as the substance of the new self. <laughs> 
So then, fourthly, practicing silence and solitude brings us in touch with our true identity in Jesus. That is, that we are beloved by God. This is huge. We enter into solitude, first of all, to meet our Lord and to be with him and him alone. Our primary task in solitude, therefore, is not to pay undue attention to the many faces which assail us. And by faces, he means these false selves, the ways in which we would put forward images. But to keep the eyes of our mind and heart on him who is our divine savior. Only in this context of grace can we face our sin. Only in the place of healing do we dare show our wounds. Only with a single-minded attention to Christ can we give up our clinging fears and face our own nature. And then, Willard, we can only survive solitude if we cling to Christ there. Uh, So, again, we meet Jesus in this place, in this silence. We are assured of his love for us. And here's, here's how I think this can work. You think about your false self being exposed or the image that you would like to put forward. It, it's, it shows and is exposed in this. What happens then and what Jesus intends for us in that is that whatever it is that's behind that, that person that you're trying to hide, that you're ashamed of, that you are trying to cover up by putting forward this mask, this false self. What we realize in that moment is that this person back here that you are hiding is the one that Jesus died for. That it's this person that you are hiding that Jesus loves. It's the person that you're hiding that that he has come to, wants to be with and wants to. uh, And it's the one for whom he has died, the one that he is making new. And I think it's when we begin along that road that, that we are freed in ways uh, from our false self that we wouldn't be otherwise. So we we come to a place where we actually, as John, 1 John 4.16 says, that we would know and believe the love that God has for us. Especially that person that you are trying to hide. It's that person that Jesus loves. It's that person that Jesus delights in. And so that, that's what can happen in the context of this silence and solitude. And so it enables us to commune with Jesus, be assured of his love and grace. And it forces us then to acknowledge that God is in control and we are not. It's this, it's an embodied practice, as we said, of trusting God. And in that way, it shapes our desires. It reorders our loves in that way. It sets us free. Um, and then uh, it moves us outward as well. Finally, practicing silence and solitude enables us to love Others. So this can be extraordinarily painful, as we've said, to be to have kind of this this real need of Jesus exposed in the midst of um, kind of all the ways that we push back against that. Uh, but when we do that and actually acknowledge the love that God has for us uh, and su- such that our own worship of him comes forth, it transforms our relationships around us. And this is a now and does this does great stuff with this. He says we become compassionate people. And, and it's, it's, this is how it works. You look squarely at your own sin, your own idolatry, your own false self. And you look at the ugly parts of your heart. And then you see the way in which Jesus has shown you compassion and mercy and the way that he's loved you in the midst of that. And it then brings about a compassion and an ability to look at other people and recognize and see their struggles, see the way that they're putting forward their false self and actually love them rather than despise them or compete against them or judge them and push them away. And so we we can become compassionate people. Uh, It enables us to love others in that way. And so now 
What becomes visible here is that the solitude molds self-righteous people into gentle, caring, forgiving persons who are so deeply convinced of their own great sinfulness and so fully aware of God's even greater mercy that their life itself becomes ministry. In a world that victimizes us by its compulsions, we're called to solitude where we can struggle against our anger and greed and let our new self be born in the loving encounter with Jesus Christ. It's in this solitude that we become compassionate people, deeply aware of our solidarity and brokenness with all of humanity and ready to reach out to anyone in need. A few specific ways this happens. One is by teaching us how to listen to, observe, and pay attention to others. We could talk a lot about the significant gift of actually listening to somebody else. A practice of silence and solitude cultivates this. It allows us to, rather than just speak, put forward our image towards somebody else, stop, listen, observe, and love. Uh, by not being controlled by or controlling others. This is Ed Welch's great point in When People Are Big and God Is Small. That really the only way to stop worshiping and idolizing people is to then uh, reorder our desires or our love such that we are fearing God rather than people. And as you begin to worship God, you can actually begin loving people because you're not manipulating them to get some sort of response from them. You're able to actually love them. And then by disciplining our speech, uh, the way another writer puts this is that it frees us from negative habits of speech. I uh, think of deception or gossip, impulsive chatter, uh, just managing our uh, the way people view us and the need to constantly express our own opinions or critiques of people. Um, we learn when to speak and when to refrain from speaking is how Foster puts it. So those are, I think, really compelling reasons why this is important. We'll end here with these practices. Uh, choose a, a consistent time of day and place that is quiet. Uh, this might mean early morning. This could be late at night, depending on what sort of person you are. Um, start with 10 to 15 minutes. You can actually just set your phone or your watch. People would use a watch that way. Uh, use your phone to, uh, to set, the, set the time and, and so that you're not constantly looking back at a clock. Um, begin with a short prayer asking God to be with you in the time. You can focus on a particular verse. I've got some options, some suggestions for you there. Very simple phrases. Abide in me as I abide in you. Uh, my peace I give to you. Be still and know that I am God. To, and use that to help refocus as distractions and things come. Uh, gently return to God as distractions arise. Don't beat yourself up because the to-do list begins to uh, magically arise in your head during this time. Um, spend that time. Make it consistent. Close your time then with the Lord by praying the Lord's Prayer. Think afterwards. Don't do this as much during, but acknowledge and address the fears, cares, concerns, and worries that arise while thinking about doing this and then while actually being in solitude and silence. Uh, if you're a journaler, do that afterwards uh, to, to even uh, specifically on those uh, fears and cares. And then here's an important thing to remember, uh, that the benefits of this practice are more often seen and experienced outside of those periods of silence and solitude. In other words, don't come away thinking like, I don't know what just happened there. That was like 10 or 15 minutes that I can't have back. Um, 
know that this is something that is cumulative over time, and uh, many of those who really participate in this on a regular basis will attest over and over again to the fact that the fruit bears itself outside of that time. Um, and then try for a morning or afternoon away once a month if you can, and then take advantage of little solitudes. Foster says, like, uh, when you wake up in the morning before you get out of bed. Commute with no radio on when you're in traffic, etc. Exercise with no music. Uh, there's some questions for reflection. And then recommended reading. Uh, all of those now in quotes can't come from this tiny book called The Way of the Heart. I'd really recommend that on this topic. Let me pray for us.